We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Two guests on the show today, Jeff Zebrick from The Athletic. Jeff covers the Ravens. Why am I having somebody on that covers the Ravens? I think the Lamar Jackson contract saga in Baltimore is one of the more interesting NFL storylines right now. And actually, one of the more fascinating contract stories we've seen in sports in a long time. If you're not following it, Lamar Jackson is representing himself Jeff will be on, and we'll talk about that uh, with him. Following Jeff, Kevin Grevy will be on this show. It's always fun to catch up with Kevin, and we will do that on today's podcast. Kevin was a part of the only Washington NBA championship team, and that happened 44 years ago last night. The Bullets beat the Supersonics in Game 7 in Seattle to win it all. We'll have Kevin Grevy on the show. We'll talk some NBA Finals with Kevin as well. Game three tonight in Boston. The Celtics are three and a half point favorites. I do not like a side either way, but I'm looking forward to watching the game. And I hope Tommy will give it one more chance and maybe we'll get a really good game uh, tonight in game three of the NBA Finals. Uh, The Broncos, assuming the NFL approves the sale, will be sold for $4.65 billion. That is two times what the Panthers were sold for back in 2018 when David Tepper bought the team. If Denver is worth $4.65 billion, what's Washington worth? A lot more is the answer. The Broncos will be sold to Rob Walton, one of the heirs to the Walmart fortune. Denver's a really good NFL city, don't get me wrong, but it does not have the same potential financially as this market does. Denver's sale, if it goes through and if it's approved by the NFL owners, it needs three-quarters of the NFL owners to approve it. It will, be, it will become the all-time highest sale for a professional sports franchise If the league ever forces Snyder to sell, and I don't think that'll happen, or if he decides to do it on his own, and I would probably bet against that as well, I think Washington would sell for $5 billion plus, maybe a lot more than that. 
Um, I wouldn't bet on Dan being forced out, as mentioned, and I wouldn't bet that he'd sell voluntarily. But if he did, if he did, he would pocket a hell of a lot of money. And that's even after paying off the debt uh, that he incurred to buy out the minority shareholders, Fred Smith, Bob Rothman, and Dwight Schar, when he paid $875 million for roughly 40% of the minority stake that those three gentlemen held. Now, think about this. If Dan decides to pay off that debt that he used to buy those guys off by selling another, let's just say, 40% of the team, a non-controlling stake in the team to another group of minority shareholders, well, the value, even though it's non-controlling, and that's why the $2.2 billion valuation uh, on the minority share sales to Shar Rothman, and Fred Smith, it's really not reflective of what the team would sell for. You, you always sell you know, a non-controlling minority stake for less than you would sell it uh, if you were selling it, uh, if you were selling a majority stake. You know, the minority shareholders pay less for their stake than a majority shareholder would pay. But still, the point being that if Dan were to sell that uh, stake that he bought back from Shar Rothman and Smith, he might be able to sell it for a lot more than he paid for it, given the recent Denver sale. Uh, and that would be another, you know, big win uh, from the, uh, the football team uh, for Dan. Um, you know, buying out his minority shareholders for $875 mil- uh, uh, million dollars um, was, you know, kind of a deal, really. And if he were to sell that stake, he'd probably be able to sell that stake based on the recent comp, the Denver comp, for a lot more. Um, anyway, uh, I got this tweet from Joel. Uh, Joel wrote, Kevin, do you think it would have gotten any worse with Deshaun Watson if he had been traded here? LOL exclamation point. Um, Joel's referring to my opinion that if they had traded for Deshaun Watson, which I was in favor of, you know, as long as they had done all of their research and due diligence to determine that he was going to actually be able to play in the league and he wouldn't be in jail, um, I said, look, how much worse could it get for this franchise? Well, if you haven't read the New York Times story on Deshaun Watson, which is why Joel was tweeting this to me last night, um, Deshaun Watson in the New York Times is reported to have sought out massage, massages with 66 women over 17 months. We know about the 24 pending civil cases against him, but he sought out massages with 66 different women over 17 months. So um, to Joel saying, do you think it would have gotten any worse? Like he was saying that tongue in cheek. Yeah, I was wrong about that. Of course, it would be worse. It would be a lot worse. Forget the fact that they would have traded, you know, whatever Cleveland traded. It was like three number ones, two number twos, whatever. It was like six, seven picks. And forget the fact that he would have required the contract that Cleveland gave him, which is unprecedented in terms of guaranteed money. That alone would have wrecked the team if it turns out that Watson's going to miss a ton of games or maybe even a full season. 
Who knows at this point, really, about when he's going to be suspended. He's going to get suspended. But yeah, this franchise, more than any other, would have been brought to its knees by the recent Watson allegations, reports, etc. I agree. Would have been awful. It could have gotten a lot worse. And let's be honest here. I understand he hasn't been charged with a crime. You know, he wasn't indicted by that grand jury. Um, And I know that he's denied all of these allegations. But 24 civil cases, 66 women over 17 months. This dude had, and for all we know, still has a major problem. This is not he said, she said. This is a raging fire of a guy that was clearly out for massage sex. Not not massage therapy. He was in it to try to get sex out of the massage, whether the masseuse consented or not. I'm not even going to read the details from the 24th plaintiff that came forward with a civil case. It's gross, if true. But again, 24 civil cases, 66 women. You know, it's like when... The post came out initially with the allegations about the toxic workplace and the misogynistic workplace in Washington. It's like, look, you know, if it's one, you know, if it's a couple of of women that are complaining about a toxic workplace and about how they were treated, you know, okay. But there were 17 initially, and ultimately there were more than 42. I mean, you can't think that all of these people conspired together to get Deshaun Watson. By the way, the grand jury did not indict him on criminal charges, but that doesn't mean he didn't do anything wrong because he's already been reported, it's already been reported that he offered the first 22 women that that had civil cases initially 100,000 each to keep quiet. And by the way, you don't see him fighting these charges tooth and nail to prove his innocence in these, you know, as it relates to the civil cases, maybe he will, but he's a problem for the league right now. He is a problem for the league. I mean, they've got a lot of problems, although, you know, once they start playing football, all of these problems always go away, but it's going to be interesting to see how they handle um, that situation. Um, The final OTA day for your commanders was today. Uh, from some of the beat guys out there today, there was a moment that apparently got Ron Rivera angrier than he has ever been. Uh, apparently, there was a collision between Jeremy Reeves and Diami Brown, and he laid in to the team. Uh, I'll read a couple of the. Um, I'll read a couple of the tweets. Uh, ben had one. JP had one. Nikki had one. Um, this was, hold on, from Pete Haley, uh, NBC Sports Washington. Jeremy Reeves just crushed Deami Brown in the middle of the field. Ron Rivera lost his mind. He grabbed the entire team for a full huddle and yelled at them louder than I've ever heard him yell in his time here. He screamed, that makes no sense to me, as Deami was walking off and looking dazed. Um pressure in this third year big year lots of expectations you know things better start making sense to him I wonder if Jack Del Rio makes sense to him so 
I'm recording this as there are interviews still going on with players after uh, with coaches and players. I think after this OTA day, and I think there's one scheduled with Carson Wentz, and I will have more on that tomorrow. But Jack Del Rio was asked about his recent activity and political outspokenness on Twitter. You know, if you missed it, um, Jack, uh, or if you've been missing it, Jack is super conservative. He's a big Trump supporter. And the tweet that's getting the most attention, and there are several of them that you could choose from over the last few weeks, including, by the way, Bite D's. Uh, But the tweet that is getting the most attention is this one, which came in response to... Uh, a story about the January 6th hearings that will start tomorrow night and will be televised by virtually every major network. Um, He tweeted, quote, would love to understand the whole story about why the summer of riots, and he's referring to, you know, the riots during the summer of 2020 following uh, the George Floyd murder. He writes, would love to understand the whole story about why the summer of riots, looting, burning, and the destruction of personal property is never discussed, but this, meaning January 6th, is question mark, question mark, question mark. That's what he tweeted out, and he was asked about this today, and I'll just read some of what was a long response with follow-up questions, etc. But uh, he said the following... He said, uh, let's get right down to it. This was, by the way, after saying, you know, I don't, we're not going to talk about this. As an American, I have the right to express myself. And then he says, but let's get right down to it. What did I ask? A simple question. Why are we not looking into those things if we're going to talk about January 6th? Meaning, why, why are we not looking into the riots and the burning and the many deaths and the billions and billions of dollars worth of damage that were done uh, during that period following the George Floyd. Um, and we're going to only focus on January 6th. He, he says, why are we not looking into those things? Because it's kind of hard me to st- for me to say that I can realistically look at it I see the images on TV, people's livelihoods are being destroyed, businesses being burned down, no problem. And then we have a dust-up at the Capitol. So, uh, dust-up at the Capitol, uh, that's going to be a headline, I would imagine. That's going to make some news this afternoon uh, attached to his name. Uh, Look, I've got a few thoughts on this, but they're going to be confined in specific to Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator of the Washington Commanders, and whether or not being politically outspoken like he has been uh, and has really been over the last couple of weeks makes, you know, sense for him given his position. He's entitled to his opinion. We all are. His freedom to say what he wants, however, does not does not protect him from the consequences that can come from what he says. In his position as a coach and leader of many different you know, personalities and beliefs, I think he's taking a big-time risk in being this politically outspoken as a public figure. He's not weighing in on a candidate's tax plan. He's weighing in on topics that are very emotional and have been very divisive. I think it's a big risk for him. Not that his players and fellow coaches, if they've been paying attention since he got here, don't know already what his political beliefs are, but referring to January 6th as a dust-up is going to make news. And maybe those that have blown off some of his social media 
you know, musings over the last few years, maybe they won't blow it off this time. And because of that, maybe it will affect his ability to do his job well. The players and coaches haven't said much in the past. You know, that was a concern, remember, early on that his outspokenness on Twitter uh, about being a big-time Trump supporter and, you know, a, a super conservative, that maybe that wouldn't match with the players in his locker room and maybe that would impact, the you know, his ability to do his job. But we haven't heard anything from players, not publicly anyway, and we haven't really heard anything from coaches either. We'll see if they decide this time to react differently. You know, maybe they won't say something publicly, but maybe it'll be their actions towards him that really is all that needs to be said. Of course, that assumes that they disagree with him and are emotional in their disagreement with him. I I guess for me, the bottom line would be I respect completely his right to speak freely on things that he's passionate about, whether I agree or disagree with him. But given his profession and job responsibility, I think he really lacks in self-awareness for being this outspoken on these issues publicly. You know, I don't know if these are issues he brings up in private. In his, I'm talking about professionally in private. But I just think as a high-level coach, as the defensive coordinator for an NFL team, a team that's trying to move away from being this, you know, daily controversial shit show that it just shows bad judgment on his part and makes him look foolish. This organization doesn't need another sideshow right now, and Jack Del Rio has become one. I think it's selfish on his part, and I think it's dumb. Up next, Jeff Zebrick. He covers the Ravens. We'll get into this interesting Lamar Jackson contract situation. We'll do so right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
All right, a little bit of a shift from, uh, you know, Washington Commanders uh, talk to the team up the road, the Baltimore Ravens. Um, No, we're not going to turn this show into a Ravens show, but I actually think one of the real interesting NFL stories right now is Lamar Jackson playing on this fifth-year you know, option and him negotiating a potential contract extension on his own and whether or not that'll lead to a contract extension. So here to talk about that, maybe some Ravens and maybe some NFC North is Jeff Zrebic. Jeff covers the team for The Athletic. As I tell everybody, I'm a subscriber to The Athletic. You should be as well. It's totally worthwhile. You know, guys like Ben Standig and Jeff Zrebic do such a good job at covering uh, all the teams in the league. Um, You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Z-R-E-B-I-E. See, so Jeff, what's going on with the Lamar Jackson Ravens contract extension or not uh, situation? Just uh, give everybody, you know, a a minute or two on on where we are on this thing and whether or not you think something will get done. Sure, Um, you know, and it is—it's a bizarre situation. I mean, the the version is Lamar Jackson has stayed away from the facility. In fact, I believe he hasn't been at the Ravens facility since the last game of last season. Uh, He stayed away all offseason. Ravens officials are saying that he's let it be known to the team that he's just not, he doesn't think this is the time to negotiate a contract. Now, they're ready to pay him a lot of money, um, and their contention is that he, on other things right now. He just doesn't want uh, to negotiate a contract right now. And what that reason may be, uh, it's hard to say. You know, Lamar Jackson hasn't spoken a lot about the media about this. He's uh, several opportunities. He's talked about how he wants to be in Baltimore. Uh, This is where he's going to be. But, you know, when it's come down to talking about a contract extension, he hasn't been very willing to do it at this point. Um, So uh, they seem to be resigned to him playing out this year under the 50-year option and then trying again next offseason where the uh, franchise tag will obviously come into play. But uh, it's interesting. Um, The way the Ravens tell it, uh, and they've been very clear about this, and they're dealing directly with Lamar Jackson. So uh, I'm sure they're conscious of not alienating their franchise quarterback. But the way they tell it is they're ready to go, and he's just not at this point, and they respect his stance. Why don't you think he's ready to negotiate a contract extension? You know what, Kevin? I- I'd have to think. You know, they- they- they've talked. Uh, they talked early in the process, and I had to think where the Ravens are with their you know, initial offer when they started talking about this stuff was not even in the stratosphere. And he kind of just said, look, if this is what it's going to be, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'll, I'll be franchised. The, the, you know, uh, I'll be franchised next year, and I'll worry about it. I'll bet on myself, and, and we'll go from there. But you know, I'd have to think when they had their initial conversation, there was a little bit of a difference of opinion there. I mean, they've said all sorts of things. You know, they've said that he's fo- he feels like he's not worthy of one until he, you know, until he has playoff success and leads them where they want to go as an organization. I'm not necessarily buying that. Uh, he's a confident guy, and he's done a lot for the football team. Um, they've talked about how he's just focused on improving in his own game. And he's just really, uh, you know, he's not motivated by money. And, you know, I'm sure there's some truth to all those things, but until, uh, Lamar and he doesn't have an agent. So he's very, there's a very 
closed. You know, there's not a lot of information coming from his side that you can really trust. I mean, people speculating what his motives are, but nobody really knows but but him, you know, and the few people who are advising him. Uh, so it's hard to say, but, uh, you know, he's been very clear. Anytime someone suggested this is a sign that he's ready to get out of Baltimore, he's shot him down and got, and, and got on the offensive a little bit. So uh, if, if not that, then it's kind of... Uh, you know, it's kind of uh, interesting that he's not willing, and and even him not showing up all off all off season. That's his priority. I mean, this isn't mandatory. Uh, but if he's not ready to talk contract, and he's the one not wanting to talk it, and then he's holding out, uh, not holding out, but I mean, staying away for the team facility for the voluntary stuff. Uh, if the, that's contract related, it, it, it's tough to marry the to the two together. It just doesn't quite make sense if that's the stance. Yeah, the whole thing is a little bit bizarre. Real quickly, did he attend off-season voluntary OTAs last year and the year before? I mean, has he been a regular for those? Is this the first year yeah. that he's been absent? Yes, he's he's gone to OTAs okay. in the past and, and taken part in all the voluntary stuff. What does everybody make of Lamar Jackson doesn't have doesn't have an agent? What's the reaction to that? You know, from you, from the team, um, you know, is this something that's hurting him right now? I think it is, and I think it's hurting him for it's hurt him for a while. I mean, you know, when it's tough, uh, you know, when you don't have somebody. First of all, it just makes negotiations tougher. I mean, we're talking about, and I'm not saying, and I'm sure he has people in his corner and advisor and, and sort of people advising him, and, and that's all well and good, but. Uh, Eric DaCosta, their GM, has been clear that he's he when he they've talked contract, he's done it directly with Lamar. I mean, these are very, you know, these uh, you know contract negotiations with with the stakes on the line can get kind of nasty at times. I mean, you know, and and you, it's not it's not hard to offend the other side. And what the agent does is the agent kind of filters some of that stuff and protects the team and the client from, you know, things getting kind of ugly and hearing things that he probably shouldn't hear. I mean, that's kind of an agent's job. But you have to kind of walk on eggshells when you negotiate a deal with directly with a player. You have to be careful of everything you say. You have to make sure, you know, with all the offers that, you know, there's nothing, you know, it's just all part of the nego- negotiations. And these are tough negotiations. And, and that he's doing it directly with the GM, uh, it, it's just interesting. It, it certainly adds to the challenge. Uh, of getting a deal done. I mean, but I think, look, ever since, you know, he's gone the NFL, Lamar has done things his way. Um, you know, he, he trusts his people that are around him, and uh, he sort of doesn't listen to, you know, what other people think he should be doing. He sort of be, uh, marches the beat of his own drum, and, and, you know, it's gotten him a unanimous MVP. Uh, but here's the next step. And, uh, you know, this is big business. This is you know, uh, this goes wrong. You know, this is a potential franchise-altering thing. Uh, and, and, you know, I think it would make sense for an agent to be involved, but uh, Lamar apparently does not feel that way. Look, I mean, that organization, and, you know, it's 35 miles to the north from, from ours, and there are a lot of people down here that aren't Ravens fans and vice versa, but I've said this for many years. I mean, they're an organization that you've got to really respect. I mean, they've got a real owner in Steve Bashotti. They had Ozzie Newsom there for years. They've got Eric DaCosta, you know, and so on one level it's like, if Lamar Jackson were playing in this organization, and I'm talking really pre-Ron Rivera and, you know, 
Marty Herney and Martin Mayhew. I mean, this organization would have taken advantage of the situation. On some level, business is business, but I kind of feel like, and tell me if you feel the same thing, that in these negotiations, DaCosta probably is trying to help Lamar out. Like, I don't see them, yeah. you know, t- ripping him off and taking advantage of, you know, his inexperience in something like that. Yeah, and that's the great point, Kevin, because, you know, the Ravens are sort of in a no-win situation here. You can't just write a blank check. You just can't do it. You know, these, these as I said, these deals impact everything, the way you build your roster around the, the deal. I mean, you get saddled with a bad deal and, and you just give in on everything, uh, that puts you in bad situation going forward and affects your ability to build a championship team around your franchise quarterback. Uh, but you also... You know, if the perception is out there that you're taking advantage of your franchise quarterback, who's right. you know a very popular guy around the league, that's that's also not good. I mean, that that'll affect everything. That'll affect you know other players' willingness uh, to sign with you and just your reputation around the league. That's why, as I said, it's such a tough situation for the Ravens to be in. And publicly, they're you know they're very supportive of Lamar Jackson. They've been from day one. They've made it clear that he's their guy. They've built an offense around him. Um, but, you know, I'm sure behind closed doors, they wish it wasn't going down like this. I'm sure it's made everything a lot more difficult to kind of navigate. You know, the other part of this story, which is such an interesting part of the story, I mean, you, we've, you, you've taken us through kind of the state of the, the contract situation and Jackson, you know, representing himself. But what's really unique about Lamar Jackson in this situation is his style of play. And the truth is, on some level, right, that it might be beneficial for the Ravens to let him play this fifth-year option and then to franchise him for a couple of years rather than sign him to, you know, a deal that could, you know, come into the or reach the 35 to $40 million per, per year range. I mean, you know, the, he plays in such a way that you wonder how long he can play this way. Well, there's no doubt, and it's not, you know, it's not a popular, you know, Lamar Jackson's still a pretty polar, you know, he's he's the face of the franchise, and people love him. I'm not trying to claim there's not a lot of support, but there's some people, you know, who are on the other end of the fence who just aren't believers yet, um, But and they don't, you know, the people who are all pro-Lamar and don't want to hear anything else, they don't want to hear this, but I agree. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that they're not signing him to a contract extension this offseason. I don't think it's the worst thing in the world that they want to see more. And, and this is me speaking. The Ravens are clearly ready to do it. I'm just saying uh, extra time sometimes gives you, uh, you know, can be advantageous to evaluate. I mean, this is a unique offense they run around Lamar Jackson that nobody else in the league is running. And is it is it going to get him to the Super Bowl? Can you get to a Super Bowl this way? Uh, they were 14-2 and two in 2019, and, and they tanked in the playoffs in the divisional round. They come back in 2020, win a playoff game, then get eliminated. Lamar Jackson has not played particularly well in the playoffs. When teams have taken away what they right. do best, they've struggled to win in the playoffs. So uh, is, it bad? is it the worst thing in the world that the Ravens could see more this year? I mean, look... Jackson was a quarterback. He struggled to stay healthy all last year. Now he's been he's been very durable his first you know couple years in the NFL. But last year was a year he was sick a lot. He missed a ton of practices. 
Then I think it was the last five or six games he missed with the, with the bone bruise in, in his ankle foot area. Um, you know, what happens this year if that trend sort of continues and, and he misses a lot more time? Um, at the end of the year, the Ravens may be real happy that they didn't make a huge deal. I mean, I think uh, people don't want to hear this, but I don't have a problem with if the Ravens' stance is we want to see more. You know, not just from Lamar. This isn't just on Lamar. This is about their offense as a whole. Can we win with this offense? Is Greg Roman the right coordinator to get us to where we want to go and to win a Super Bowl? And can we win uh, playing this style? And so far, the, the one thing you could say about Lamar Jackson, he's been brilliant for the most part in the regular season. And he, he and the rest of the team, it's not just on him, but he and the rest of the team has struggled in the postseason. And the Ravens, you know, don't do this to just make the playoffs. That's, that's all well and good. But, you know, they want to win a Super Bowl again. And, uh, you know, you have to decide if the way they're playing and the style they're playing can get them to that point. That's why I think another year uh, of this, isn't necessarily the worst thing. Uh, you know, if you have to franchise them next year, you have to franchise them. I mean, you're going to be paying them a big cap number either way. So I don't think it's necessarily the worst thing in the world to get another year where they can evaluate uh, not just Lamar Jackson, but the, the direction of where the offense is headed. So just out of curiosity, is Tyler Huntley still on the roster? Is he still the backup? Yes, Tyler Huntley is the backup. And uh, they brought um, Brett Huntley, too, which is going to make it miserable and our daily camp reports <laughs> distinguish between Hunley, Hunley and, and Hunley. Hunley, but yeah, because yeah, I thought Hunley's just a yeah. God, no, I was going to say I, I thought Huntley, you know, playing when Lamar was out last year, I thought he had some pretty good games. I mean, like I thought yeah. he proved that you know he's very much a backup in this league and in the right style of offense, which is that one can be pretty damn effective as a starter. Yeah, yeah, I think he put them in. You know, they played a lot of good teams down the stretch. They did, and they played. They played the Rams down the stretch, and they played the, you know, the um, Packers down the stretch. And and with with Huntley, they were in position to win just about every game. They got their doors blown off by Cincinnati down the stretch, but Huntley wasn't. He didn't play that game. He was on the COVID list. So yeah, he showed himself well considering. Um, and and it's a you know look. It's a good benefit to have a rookie or a backup quarterback who can win you games and you don't have to change the offense. He can run, That's you know, right. he's not as athletic as Lamar Jackson, but he can do a lot of similar things that Lamar can do. To have that guy in his rookie contract where you're not paying big bucks to a backup quarterback. Uh, that's a good situation they have there right now. And, look, he's getting a ton of reps this offseason with Lamar not in the building. So, uh, you know, theoretically his game should uh, be improving uh, too. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of why they had RG3 there because he could play the same yeah. style of offense um, as Lamar Jackson. So just a couple of quick questions about the team. Uh, the, you know, the, your your first-round pick was a guy that I really wanted Washington to select at 11 overall. They ended up trading back. Um, but taking Kyle Hamilton at a Notre Dame, what's he, you know, what's the early word through these, you know, off-season activities on, on Hamilton? Yeah, he, he looks as advertised. It was, it was an interesting pick, but kind of a typical Ravens best player available pick where safety was not a need, but it just got to the point with where they got him. It was like, look, this guy shouldn't still be here. He's too good of a football player to still be on the board at 14. So uh, it kind of became a no-brainer decision. And, and, you know, 
he really looks the part. He, he's a, you know, you can only, you can't tell a whole lot in these non-contact OTAs and stuff, but he just, he moves very well. He, he's a very fluid mover. He doesn't seem to be overwhelmed by anything. He's communicating already back there. He seems to be in the right place at the right time. And he's just one of these guys that even in rookie minicamp, you could pick him out and you could say, okay, that guy looks like he belongs. And that's what you could say about uh, Kyle Hamilton. It'll be interesting how they use them because they also spent big money on Marcus Williams, the Saints' free safety. Um, they're building this team from the back end of their defense like they usually do defensively. And uh, I imagine Hamilton will be a big part of it, uh, but they'll have the ability to move him around. I think you'll see him play some dime linebacker. I think you'll see him play in the slot. I think you'll see him play some deep safety. Uh, he's a really good fit in his versatility for what they want to do defensively. Yeah, I think the Ravens had a, a really good draft um, personally as, as much as you can evaluate it You know, in the moment. Um, are you surprised that, that it didn't work out for Hollywood Brown in Baltimore? Um, a little bit. Uh, it's just, look, uh, this offense is sort of being a graveyard for receivers. Right. And, um, you know, it's some, it's not for everybody. And that's why we've seen, you know, they drafted six receivers. They didn't draft one this past draft, but in the three previous drafts, they drafted six receivers. And, you know, that was a nod just to the fact that, look, we're not going to get veteran accomplished free agents to sign here. Nobody's going to, no veteran free agent is going to want to come and play in this kind of offense. You know, none of the top guys that have options, I should say. Uh, so it's not an easy offense to play. And he was getting closer, he was getting a closer to needing a contract and a contract extension. And he was seeing his numbers weren't as high as he wanted. And he wanted to go to a team that was, uh, more conducive to being able to put up, you know, make more big plays, do less blocking, and have more chances in a wide open passing game. So uh, I get it, you know, to an extent. But I mean, he, I think he ranked like tenth in the league in targets last year. So it's not like he was getting neglected in Baltimore. It's just he wants more of a wide open offense where they take shots down the field, uh, you know. But this this offense has definitely spurred some frustration over the years, and it's not just here with Greg Roman. Wherever he's been not really been very conducive to receivers having big years. But the one thing I was surprised at is, I mean, this guy is Lamar Jackson's best friend. You know, you're already dealing with a contract situation with Lamar Jackson. And, you know, that's also gotten tricky. And now you're, you know, you're trading his best friend uh, to another team. And his best friend wanted out. Right. Uh, rather than continue to play in this offense with Lamar. So that dynamic made it a little bit of an interesting situation. But, um, you know, not to pray in the past, we've seen, you know, Marquise kind of sound off on Twitter about not getting the ball enough. So he kind of had that tendency in him. So I guess I'm not completely shocked, but uh, with what's going on with Lamar made it kind of, you know, a little surprising. All right, last one. Um, last year was a weird year, you guys. I mean, it seemed like a- a- any running back that suited up was going to be, you know, injured for the season starting in preseason. And yet, you know, at one point the Ravens were 8-3 and three last year, and then, you know, obviously uh, Jackson missed uh, a lot of games down the stretch, and it was an 8-9 and nine season, and you saw a team in the division end up getting to the Super Bowl and not the one that probably anybody anticipated before the year started. So what kind of year do you think the Ravens are going to have you know assuming relative health because that wasn't the situation last year and where do you put him in the AFC North yeah the tricky thing Kevin is 
all those guys that missed all year are kind of, I don't want to say, going to be questionable for this year because most of them are going to have a full year. But we haven't seen any on the field, and likely we won't see them at the beginning of training camp. I mean, and we're talking eight to ten guys. I mean, we're talking their two top running backs, Dobbins and Gus Edwards, and we're talking, um, you know, Ronnie Stanley, their all-pro left tackle. We're talking Marcus Peters, uh, their pro Bowl corner. Just so many key players who probably aren't going to be on the field as day one training camp. And that makes this all interesting, add in the, the Lamar Jackson effect um, with him missing time, and what are you going to get? He's going to be the mo- he's going to have more pressure on him this year than probably any NFL. I mean, in terms of the scrutiny and stuff, so it makes it tough a little to call and to see how all these variables will work out. But I think they have a talented team. Uh, Ravens usually bounce back when they have a bad year. I-, I agree with you. I think they had a good draft. I think they've added some pieces in free agency. I think it's a playoff team. Um, you know, I do, but I think, you know, uh, Bengals deserve to be the, the, the team uh, in the uh, the number one team going into the uh, season in terms of the AFC North. I think they, they crushed the Ravens twice last year, so uh, they deserve the uh, the distinction of being the preseason number one there, and, and I think the Ravens, assuming relative good health, will be right there in the number two spot. I mean, until you see what happens with Watson and right. Cleveland, how long of a suspension he gets. And you know, there's always seems to be something going wrong in Cleveland, even if it's not involving that situation. Right. So, you, you know, it kind of paused there. And, you know, with the Steelers quarterback situation, I, I think they'll be competitive. Mike Tomlin always has them competitive. But I, I, I just haven't seen enough of Mitch Trubisky, Mason Rudolph, and, and you know, obviously uh, Pickett, the rookie. So uh, they, I don't know how what kind of quarterback play they're going to get enough to suggest they're going to be battling for the top spot. So uh, I would put Ravens at the number two spot as of now. Right, I lied. I've got one more for you. Do you guys follow, do you care up there about – the you know constant um, you know news story lines coming out of the franchise here you know whether it's congressional investigations or stadium funding or you know uh, what, what I'm just curious as to what kind of level of attention you pay to it. Um, personally, I, I kind of chuckle because uh, you know I think there was a quote from the Ravens' new president Sashi Brown in the in the Washington Post and Adam Kilgore's story about how, you know, they're not really consumed with the, the move or their stadium thing, and the Ravens don't really affect them. I'm not buying that for a second. Uh, if, if you don't, you know, if I, I would be highly skeptical that they're not seeing this as an opportunity uh, if the Red, excuse me, if the commanders move. So uh, from their perspective, I think they're paying attention to every bit of it. Um, I, I'm just interested in it from a perspective of, you know, kind of the, you know, the train wreck theory, just, you know, it's interesting, like what could go wrong next? How is all this getting resolved? And, you know, I talked to Ben Standing a lot about it and just kind of the challenges he has with all this stuff going on. Um, so, you know, I, you know, they're always going to get, you know, some Raven fans that don't like Washington. Uh, you know, I, I think there's less of that going on. You know, I think it's funny when people try to drum it up as a rivalry. I think for the most part, I don't know how much Washington fans care about Baltimore, and I don't think Baltimore cares a ton about what's going on in Washington, but there always will be fans who sort of, 
rejoice in, in Washington's misery there a little bit with the commander. So uh, I've heard it. It's, it's a little bit of the talk around here, but I don't think it's anything that sort of dominates the conversation. Me personally, I, I'm sort of interested to see how it all gets resolved. Yeah, I think the whole rivalry thing's always laughable. I mean, you don't have in the NFL yeah. your rivals are the teams you play every year, twice a year, and occasionally you'll have a rival like the 49ers and Cowboys there for that stretch, you know, the yeah. the Colts and the Patriots when it was Peyton and and Brady within a conference maybe, but no, when you play a team once every four years, there's no rivalry there. I, personally, I don't think there's yeah, much of a rivalry and, and, between the Nats and the Orioles either. You know, they're in they're in no, separate no, leagues. No, no, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, it's really you, you, yeah, you got to meet. Yeah, you you got to meet for some big games before the start meet rivalry. And when of course. you know, like there's been some rel- There's been a couple of rel- um, regular season Washington Ravens games that have had some meeting, but they're just they haven't met in big games. So no, until they start no. doing, I, yeah, I don't I don't see it at Look, all. Look, I think you can still make the argument that in a in an era where there aren't really intense rivalries anymore in the NFL, that the number one rivalry in the league is still Steelers Ravens. Like in terms of the active, current, last you know. Uh, two decades uh, rivalry. I mean, name one that's bigger and more important twice a year to the fan bases and to the teams than Steelers-Ravens. Tough to come up with. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, you know, yeah, it's waned a little bit, but it's waned a little bit because, you know, a lot of the guys that made up the rivalry have moved on. Like, the you know, the faces of the rivalry, the Ray Lewis's and the Terrell Suggs and the Ben Roethlisberger's and the you know, some of the Heinz Wards and all those guys have kind of moved on. So you're kind of in a different phase of the rivalry, but they meet twice a year, every year. It's always the biggest game for the respective fan bases. Uh, they don't like each other, but there's a respect there that makes it kind of, I think that adds to the rivalry. There's usually not a whole lot of cheap stuff that goes on in these games. They're just really hard hitting games that always come down to the end. It seems like regardless of what the respective teams' records are, so yeah, I you know I, I think it's it was interesting. Neither neither Ravens Steelers game was picked up by uh, you know a prime time, right. which is very rare. Very rare. Yeah, this year. Yeah, most of those games are at least one of them a season's on prime time. So I guess the perception is it, it's waning a little bit, but uh, those still are the funnest two games a year to cover for me. I know that much. So I don't think the rivalry is waning too much when it comes to the fans' viewpoint. Yeah. Um, Jeff, thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. The Jackson stuff, I think, is really fascinating for NFL fans everywhere. Yeah, it'll make it interesting. When when he reports, it's obviously going to be a story. Um, and one thing I neglected to say, Kevin, and, and I, you know, not just to, I don't want to short Lamar Jackson. You know, by all accounts, he's having a really good off season. I mean, he's, he's worked with his receivers at different places. His receivers have come together to work with them. You know, I you know you know a lot of these guys like to put out their workout videos, and and he's put them out in this off season. His trainer has has been kind of vocal about all the work he's put in. He spent a lot of time with uh, his personal quarterback coach. By all accounts, the Ravens should be pretty happy with how he's gone about preparing for the season. But there's no question by staying away from the building as long as he has, he's going to be highly scrutinized. And if he gets off to a slow start. 
you're going to hear the, well, maybe you should have spent more time around the building. But, you know, Lamar always enters the season with kind of a, a bullseye on, on his back. So uh, I don't think he's overly concerned with that. He never seems to be overly concerned with anything. He's quite a player mm-hmm. and, and fun to watch. Jeff, I, I really appreciate it. Take care. You too, Kim. Thank you. 44 years ago today, Washington woke up with an NBA championship team in town. Uh, it's the only one. Uh, we've ever had. Uh, The Washington Bullets on June 7th, 1978, won the NBA championship. Kevin Grevy was a part of that team. He will be my guest next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. They give it to Dennis Johnson. He'll spin the left side to the corner. Long jumper off the back of the rim. Until the long rebound. Shuffles to Dandridge. The Bullets are going to win for the first time in 36 years. Washington, D.C. has a major sports world champion. 44 years ago last night, that was the lone Washington Bullets slash Washington Wizards NBA title. Uh, They beat the Sonics in Game 7 at Seattle Center Coliseum. I can remember being about as excited as as I've ever been as a sports fan. I mean, a lot of the Redskin titles were phenomenal, and they were great, and they probably stand alone for me. Uh, Maryland basketball is probably two, but that Bullets championship in 1978 was uh, was right there. And Kevin Grevy uh, was the starting shooting guard on that team with Tommy Henderson in the backcourt and Wes Elvin and Bobby Dandridge in, in the starting lineup. And he's joining me right now. I have not talked to you in a while. Um, how have you been? I know you're doing scouting work in Charlotte for the Hornets after being with Mitch Kupchak for all those years uh, in L.A. with the Lakers. Uh, how have you been? How are you feeling these days? Kevin, I couldn't feel better. Uh, I'm 69 years old, turned 69, May 12th. And, um, you know, I still, fr- still, you know, play tennis, golf, feel good. I live here in Great Falls, Virginia, here locally have a small little horse farm uh, that keeps me in shape, keeps me busy. So all is well. I feel really good. Thanks, Kevin. You know, remembering you very much as a player, I would imagine that you are an excellent tennis player and an excellent golfer. Am I right? (laughs) Um, I never feel like I'm good enough, you know, (laughs) kind of the way I was as a basketball player. 
uh, I want more from what I do. But uh, unfortunately, knees, back, and, you know, a lot of orthopedic stuff, arthritis is keeping me from practicing as much as I like. But, uh, yeah, I like to think I'm, I can hold my own in tennis and golf. Were, were you um, a better? Are you a better tennis player? And not at, look at sixty nine. It's incredible that you're still as active as you are, and hopefully you've got another you know twenty years of being this active. My father's eighty four. He just had his ninth hole in one six months ago, which is incredible. <laughs> and even from the senior tees, is still playing at like a, an eleven or twelve handicap. Um, so I'm thrilled for him. He's a much better golfer than I am. But um, when when you were you know really competitive after your basketball career which sport were you better at tennis or golf uh probably tennis because tennis is something i've done all my life uh it was actually the first sport i played my mother was a good tennis player as my dad and so we played family tennis on vacations and it was very competitive and i wanted to beat my mom and my dad that was who i had the bullseye on when i was a kid and it was tennis that brought our family together as well as all sports. I mean, we were an athletic family, but so I just, you know, learned at a young age how to play tennis and um, golf was more of a sport I picked up later in life. After I finished my bullet career, I started playing a little golf, but um, you know, I caught up to it and I like to practice. I love hitting balls and I like going on the court and working cross courts with another good player and hitting ground strokes. So it's just something that is part of my schedule, weekly schedule, those two sports. What's the lowest your handicap's ever been in golf? Uh, a five is the lowest, and I'm about an eight right now. and trying to get back to a five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and tennis, I was a 5-0 tennis You were a 5-0, wow. So, yeah, yeah. I I played in the um, USA uh, Amateur Grass Courts and uh, Hard Court uh, with my pro here in, at uh, Riverbend Country Club, yeah. um, and that's as high as level as I got in tennis. Um, well, but anyway, it's you know you you don't do the things that you used to do the same way, so you have to compromise like a pitcher who threw 90 miles an hour and he lost a speedball well now you gotta you know pick your spots at the plate and throw junk and that's what i do on the tennis court and that's what i do on the golf course don't hit it as far but you know you manufacture uh, a way around the course well i can imagine i mean remembering you as a player you you had great hands you were a great shooter um, and all of that kind of stuff totally translates. I've, I've always felt, and I don't know if you feel the same way, that basketball players are the best all-around athletes. I know soccer players are tremendous athletes, and, and the skill you know, is, is incredible. But you, know, you were 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, you know, and you, uh, you know, the, the coordination and the hand-eye um, required to play basketball, you know, at certain levels, makes it easier to sort of adapt to other sports. Well, there's no question. You know, um, a big part of basketball is you got to, you know, it's fast, and there's a lot of people, there's a lot of traffic, and you have to see it before it happens right. a little bit. Um, probably the greatest of that was Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, uh, but you know before. Before the player even gets open, you got to be aware of where the action is, and 
And so seeing the court has helped me on tennis, seeing angles, um, scouting that player that you're playing against, seeing tendencies, um, you know, if he's going to hit a slice or a flat, the way he moves his hand on the racket, those little subtle things um, you picked up just naturally when you play basketball. And um, so they all <clears throat> have a lot of similarities in some ways. Uh, golf, on the other hand, is more of a mental yeah. game like uh, any sport. There's a mental part of the game where golf really accentuates that. And, um, you know, if you lose your confidence or you don't like hitting a certain shot, uh, it gets in your head. Um, and I have felt the pressure in tennis and golf more than I ever felt pressure in basketball because basketball was just a way of life from a little boy all the way through. And even in game seven, uh, you know, or, uh, a big basketball game, I never, yes, I felt the butterflies. I would be nervous before the game. But once the game started, there was never an incident that I felt like, oh, God, what am I doing here? Or go to the free throw line and choke up a free throw. I never felt pressure in basketball. But, damn, if I got a three-foot putt to win the <laughs> senior club championship, yeah. I feel the pressure. Yeah. And I, that drives me nuts. I'm like, why am I feeling pressure in tennis and golf? I never felt that in basketball. Well, the, but it's, yeah, it's the, weird. Part of that, too, is that you can get out those nerves more physically in a sport like basketball than you can uh, in golf. And, you know, you were talking about it, and I've always felt like golf is – Look, if you're a, a tremendous athlete, you're going to have an advantage in golf, but it's also a learned skill as much of uh, yeah. as it is an athletic feat. And those that started younger and developed like a golf swing um, when they were, you know, truly young tend to be the people that are really good at golf today. Anyway, enough, enough about that, although I, I am interested because I always <laughs> – I figured, yeah. you know, you were a, a tremendous all-around athlete. And look, the pressure for you, you went to Kentucky. For crying out loud, you know you played. Uh, many people may may not know this uh, about you, but I remember this. You played in John Wooden's final game, the NCAA title game in 1975. You were on the floor. You played very well uh, in that championship game, that NCAA uh, tournament championship game, which turned out to be Wooden uh, his final NCAA t uh, championship game and his final game. What do you remember from that night? Well, I remembered that um, uh, it was in San Diego. It wasn't even a sellout, if you can believe that, Kevin. Wow. It was in the middle of the afternoon on a Monday. Um, my dad had about eight tickets, and he sent my little brother out to sell them. Couldn't sell them. You know, uh, it, it, that, it, it, was, um, it was very strange. But we had beaten Indiana in the mid uh, Mid-East Regional Final, we were then the favorite going into that Final Four. In that Final Four was Louisville, Kentucky, UCLA, and Syracuse. We played Syracuse on that Saturday before Championship Monday and um, watched UCLA and Louisville go to overtime, and we were all in there rooting for Louisville. We wanted a Kentucky-Louisville right. Final. We shouldn't even have been in the building. We should have gone back and focused just on our jobs. But uh, we got invested in that game, and we're a little deflated. Now we play UCLA, but we thought, well, UCLA is not as good as Louisville, so we shouldn't have any problem 
But then on Easter Sunday, John Wooten announced his retirement, and it kind of took the air out of the sail for us. Now we're in San Diego, UCLA's backyard, against John Wooten is fighting for a championship at Stems. Um, and it's all the whole storyline was John Wooten. It wasn't Kentucky anymore beating undefeated Indiana, Bobby Knight's maybe best team ever. Um, it became all about John Wooten. And um, not to say that it changed anything, but um, it certainly um, turned a flavor towards UCLA. And um, even though I had 34 points, won one of my best games. I, I had a lot of points because I saw my teammates fumbling the ball, and Rick Roby, who was a terrific center for us, was missing layups, and um, Jack Gibbons wasn't himself coming off the bench. He was terrific six man, and uh, so then I just started rifling up shots. And I learned a big lesson from that game. You know, uh, uh, it was a horrible loss. Um, it's one that still bothers me to this day, but I always felt like we would have never won Game 7. Uh, that's just my own personal feeling. If we all didn't have that same desire to win at any cost, we are not going to suffer through another loss. Wes Unseld, he was on two championships before that um, uh, 78 championship, and they got swept by yeah. Golden State Warriors and got swept by Milwaukee. You think he didn't want to win? And Elvin Hayes had that same feeling. And Bobby Dandridge. And so I, myself, had that same feel. I am not going to get this far and not feel the victory, feel the championship. I said prayers, got on my knees. I did everything I could to, uh, to not suffer another humiliating loss after going that far. And... Um, Man, it is a gift that keeps on giving. And, you know, when you play that uh, that lead into this interview and when I go online and I read about that Bullets team, it still just gives me so much joy. Well, you know, one of the greatest things that ever happened to me personally. Uh, that's uh, that. Let's get to that. And then I want to get your thoughts on these NBA finals that are going on right now. Um, by the way, you had 34 sure. in that championship game, as you mentioned. You were 13 of 30. I, I'm just curious because many people don't know this. Kevin Grevy played on the opening night of the NBA season in 1979. All right, this would have been after the Bullets lost the title to the Sonics when the three-point shot was first made uh, and implemented in the yeah. NBA. And either you or Chris Ford had the first three-pointer ever made in the NBA. Ford gets credit for it, but there are people that believe that actually your three-pointer uh, in a game that started a few minutes after their game actually came before his. But anyway... Um, how many of those shots in that NCAA tournament game would have been three-pointers today? Because you were a bomber always, right? Yeah, I, I felt very comfortable from distance shooting the ball. And that was uh, back in that era um, when I was playing college and early in my NBA career. It was all about getting as close as you can to that basket. Right. There was, you know, when I say traffic, I mean, it was condensed. Ten players sometimes all in the paint, you know, battling. It was a battle of physical force. Centers, par forwards, 
those were the guys who you tried to get the ball to and get as close to the basket as you could get. But I always loved shooting long distance. Um, you know, uh, I had freedom of movement out there, um, and I worked on that long distance shot from a little kid on. And uh, so shooting a 20, 25-footer um, was kind of in my wheelhouse. Now, that's not a shot that Dick Mott wanted me taking a lot of because our first priority was to get it to Wes, Elvin, Bobby D, or get it to Greg Ballard or Mitch Kupchak coming off the bench. But they also knew that I was a pretty good shooter out there, and if they got double teamed or got where they were in a problem, boy, that ball would kick out and uh, I had time to be set, and I, I could make 50%, 60% of those wide-open shots with ease. All right, let's talk about that title team and that night 44 years ago last night. You know, um, it was an unexpected run through the postseason. You know, you guys had gone 43-38 and 38 during the regular season, and, or 44 and 38 during the regular season, um, were not expected to make the run. The Sixers were the big time favorite, uh, as we remember with, you know, Dr. J and, you know, uh, World Be Free and Daryl Dawkins and um, that whole crew that they had coming off the previous year's uh, NBA Finals loss to Portland. Um, you know, it was a weird kind of thing. Back then they had the mini series, the best two out of three, and you guys got by Atlanta. And then you were the underdog against, you know, George Gervin and the Spurs in that next series before facing the Sixers, before the Seattle series. Like, at what point do you remember you guys thinking, hey, we, we can make a run here? You know, we're not, we're not the favorites by a long shot, but we got a shot to make a run. Kevin, I think we all, to a man, felt like we had a chance to win the championship before the playoffs even started. Um, the reason we had such a um, average regular season record was injuries. Injuries, yeah. Um, had a big part of that. Um, Wes was getting older. His knees were swelling up. He was. Um, there was no such thing as load management back then. But Wes did take practices off he did take some games uh, he would play the game but then he would sit himself elvin hayes who was just an amazing athlete only missed i think and kevin you can check this yeah, but it's not a, a lot of games year career yeah i think it was eight um <laughs> that's unbelievable um even he was you know tiring out a little bit um and um mitch had the bad back and um Bobby Dandridge having nerve problem with his knee, so he missed a lot of games, too. Well, anyway, we all came together, and at Bowie State College, it was Wes Unseld, our captain, said, listen, we're all healthy now. Let's don't do anything. I don't want anybody going to Georgetown, getting the Georgetown flu. I remember looking <laughs> at me. In other words, this don't self-inflict ourselves with heavy drinking or partying. We're going to dedicate our next six, eight weeks to this uh, to this family right here, and um, we you know took care of Atlanta. She said we were underdogs all the way through. We felt like underdogs, and that's not a bad approach. Um, you don't feel the pressure as much when you just let it roll. And those favorites, um, they they deserve to be because of the great teams that San Antonio 
Philadelphia and Seattle brought to the table. But um, we felt like we were stronger, more physical. We were the healthier bunch at this point. Uh, Dick Mata was a great leader. Bob Ferry was a terrific general manager putting together that team and that bench. Bringing in Charlie Johnson in the middle of the year was unbelievable. When we were down to seven men, flying in, Charlie signing him, and he played the last 30 games of the season. He was a big factor in that game seven. I think he had 19 points in that game seven. So everybody played a big part in that and had to if we were going to upset those teams. You had, by the way, in the in the very first round, the miniseries, best two out of three for those that don't remember that, you had the top two seeds that automatically advanced to the conference semifinals, and then another four teams played best two out of three to advance to the conference semifinals, and that's where the bullets were. You had 41 in game two against the Hawks on the road to eliminate the Hawks, and then you guys beat the Spurs in six. I remember the one game where the Spurs lost their uniforms and had to wear your guys' road uniforms inside out. Um, and then and then you played the 76ers and yeah. finished off them in what was an upset. And then you get to Seattle. And Seattle's there as a surprise team. Washington's there as a surprise team. Refresh my memory. I rem- Phil Chenier was banged up with a back injury. You know, he was starting to, you know, feel the wear and tear of that lower back injury, which really finished him off and his career and you stepped in and you were a big time scorer you know taking Phil's spot from previous years but weren't you hurt as well going into those NBA finals or not oh god yeah but I was not going to sit out Stan Levine and his needle and Novocaine kept kept me on the floor I had um, hamstring injuries and you know a lot of muscle uh, uh, growing injury um my knees were swelling. Um, it's just, you know, I was feeling it. Uh, but I did uh, sustain an injury, two two bad injuries that I probably would have never played in the regular season but finished the playoffs. I uh, hyperextended my uh, left wrist shooting hand, ran into a Jack Sigma pick, and um, tore the tendon in my left hand. So I had to finish the last three games of that seven-game series, um, getting injections in, into my left wrist. And um, I also sprained my ankle right before overtime, game one. In fact, um, when this June 7th approaches, and it was thank, thank you for reminding me, but uh, <laughs> I, I rarely miss this time of year without going back, Googling games and stuff, and uh, um I totally forgot I didn't play in the overtime game one and uh, sprained my ankle really bad. And uh, fortunately, we had a few days rest before we had to fly back to Washington. It was a weird series, by the way. Uh, it was game one was in Seattle, and there was a conflict right. with um, the arena and, uh, and the Coliseum in Seattle. So they could. Uh, so the first game was played at Seattle, then two at home, then two back in Seattle, then one, one. It was so much flying, traveling, um, but it gave us, it was like, it took 23 days, I think, to play that seven game Yeah, it did. That's right. Yeah, they... they, And I needed every one of those days. (laughs) 
So yeah. so you guys lost game one out there. Um, Freddie downtown yeah. Brown had a big game for them. Then you came home and you had the two games. So it was 1-2-2 two, two, and then 1-1. One, one. Right. It was an odd setup because of, of the, that building not being available. And then, by the way, you ended up playing in the Kingdome um, in, I think, one of those games. Although that may have been the – no, the, game four, the overtime game, was the Kingdome game. Uh, and you guys yeah. won that one to even it up. Game six, when you were down 3-2, I- I've mentioned this game many times. I-, I-, I was there as a young kid with my father, and you guys won. In a- up until recently, I think it was the biggest uh, margin of victory in an NBA Finals game. You beat them by 35 points. Yeah. And that building, yeah. I don't think people remember – the cap center could get really loud, and I think that was the loudest it ever was that day. Do you remember that? It was like a Sunday afternoon game. Kevin, of course I remember that. It was <laughs> unbelievable. We destroyed Seattle, and um, we um, yes, those fans were as loud as any fans in any building I ever played in. Yep, and it just kind of sent us on to Seattle on such a confidence high. When you destroy a team like that, um, embodied us to feel that we are better than them, we will win game seven. Um, But to do it on the road, it only had been done once before in the history of the Celtics at Lakers championship. Exactly. So, um, yes, there were long odds against us doing it, but you have to go back to game six and the way everybody played and played so well. And um, um, I think we sent a loud message uh, not only to the nation in Washington, but to those guys in that locker room in Seattle where they're like, oh, boy, we just opened up a big can now, and uh, we're going to have to play sort of defensively, and we just, I don't think we ever lost the lead uh, in Game 7. We jumped out on them, maintained that lead. It got really close at the end, though, and it was uh, an amazing, there were two plays I remember, Tommy Henderson diving on the floor with about a minute and a half left, uh, tipping the ball to Mitch Kupchak, who scored and got an and one. That was a huge play. And Wes Unsell, who's not a good free throw, his free throws to seal that win. And then I remember Bobby Dandridge, the last basket driving the length of the court. You know, we knew we had the win. The clock's running out. He dunks the ball. And we sprinted into that locker room, had the greatest celebration. Uh, There wasn't any champagne in the locker room. There were a lot of differences in what the day is and then. Um, there were Heineken beers, and we're like, hey, where's the champagne? It was all in Seattle's locker room. And uh, John Lally, our trainer, tried to go down and buy the champagne from them. They wouldn't sell it. Really? So, yeah, so we drank all those beers real quick, and we got on the bus, and we're uh, telling, hey, pulling, where's the champagne? We want champagne. So our team bus, and now it's probably 11 o'clock at night, and we're driving around downtown Seattle looking for a liquor store. We found one, grabbed Abe's credit card, uh, John Lally, myself, and 
Greg Ballard went into the liquor store and uh, we just told him, "Give us all the champagne you have." It was uh, <laughs> uh, a hold up, a hold up with a credit card. <laughs> yeah, I remember you. T- I was like, yeah, yeah. And 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 the owner of that liquor store, are, aren't you the basketball team, uh, the Bullets? Yes, we just won a championship. We want your champagne. And he said, "Well, you can have all I got." And he gave us three cases, and the party started. And you said you got up that next morning on June eighth, and were so excited, and like the whole Washington uh, fan base, um, we never went to bed, Kevin. Yeah. <laughs> we stayed up, partied all night. Flew back to Dulles Airport and were greeted with about ten or fifteen thousand fans there at Dulles Airport. And oh my gosh, it was incredible. We had to go back to the Capitol Center and retrieve our cars in the parking lot. And I remember I'd been up all night, and Mitch Kupchak was my roommate in Crofton, Maryland. He lived in one of my um, rooms there at the house. And I said, Mitch, we got our salmon got uh we got our gear let's let, listen we're going to the white house tomorrow we got to get some rest we got to get to sleep so our other roommate um knew that we were coming this before cell phones or anything and we got to take the phones off the hook and we got to he's got to run interference and Mitch's like hell yeah we got to sleep so we rolled around the corner we pull in to our neighborhood and in front of my house was a, 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 about 100 people with banners on the house. The whole neighborhood confronted us in our front yard, and we were having a block party. And I'm like, Mitch, I don't think we're getting any sleep. <laughs> yeah. And so so we, we uh, celebrated with all of our neighbors and everybody in Crofton, Maryland. And um, eventually we were able to go to sleep and then meet Jimmy Carter and go to the White House the very next day. Uh, I remember you telling this story years ago to, to, to me on the air, I think it was, about the liquor store and the champagne, but it's it's thank God he didn't treat you the way the Sonics locker room did and he sold it to you. Um, <laughs> you know, that that, that that game, you know, the Wes Unseld free throws that you referenced, it was a two-point game with 12 seconds to go and, and Wes was a terrible free throw shooter. You know, he was like a a you know in the fifty yeah. percent range, and he you know I think it would may have been a three to make two, uh, which was a weird thing that many of you who are listening to this probably don't remember. Um, but he made you know he made two of them, and they were up four, and the rest is history, and we haven't had one since. Uh, but that was a a great yeah. one, and it's just amazing uh, how long ago it was. I know you've got to run, but real quickly before you do, what do you make of the finals through two games? Um, and what do you think happens next? Oh boy, I I think we're uh, headed for a a seven game series. These are two really good teams, both great defensive teams, both with uh, terrific players, good benches, a lot of weapons. Um, I just think that you know Golden State with their pedigree with their championship, usually it t- you have to take a step. You have to lose before you eventually win. Um, Boston, um, you know, with Tatum and Brown, there are not a lot of guys that in Marcus Smart. They, they've never been to a championship. So they're going to have to probably endure a loss 
Um, I know they don't, they're not thinking that way, but that's usually the way it goes. It's like the Bullocks. I mean, we didn't win a championship. We had to lose to be finally win one. Um, I think Golden State's um, experience will play out and they'll win this thing. But Boston uh, isn't going to have any of that. They're going to, it's going to be a tough series. Thank you for doing this. I really appreciate it. I feel like we could do this more often and talk, you know, just regular hoops. So I'm going to reach out to you uh, to do that more often. Good luck. I know you got a draft coming up, and I'm sure you got a lot of players that you've been scouting for Charlotte who's got, uh, I know, a couple of picks after uh, the Wizards uh, pick in the upcoming draft. Best of luck to you uh, with everything, and I, I appreciate you doing this. Love talking about the championship team. Are you kidding, Kevin? Anytime. <laughs> All right, take care. All Kevin. right, pal. Thanks. Yeah, so- you got it. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for the show today. Back tomorrow with Tommy.